0: Welcome to the Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesota with the world. Our mission is to advance international understanding and engagement in every corner of the state. We do this with a variety of programs, including our public events, K-12 education programs, great decisions discussion groups, and professional exchanges. To learn more, visit our website at globalminnesota.org.
1: We're so fortunate to have the Humphrey School as a great host for tonight's event, and we can all be here together. I've got to tell you, we are a full house tonight in the room, and we have—we had, I was going to say, 200 people online with us. We're past 250 today, more than 50 more people join us, so we have a big crowd participating in our program tonight, and we're just very excited to have you all here. Tonight's program is being recorded, so if you want to re-watch it or share it with others, um, you can certainly do that. My name is Phil Hansen. I'm the president of Global Minnesota. Global Minnesota is a vibrant, growing community of members who care about world affairs and want to connect with each other and with global leaders, influencers, and experts to discuss and engage around cultural, political, social, and economic issues that shape our global future. We really have, in Global Minnesota, a great uh, great privilege And that privilege is uh, our ability or our opportunity um, to be able to bring the world to Minnesota and share Minnesota's great people, businesses, and organizations with the world. With the support of our members and partners, we annually organize hundreds of programs, including world affairs programs like the one we're having this evening, lectures, panel and group discussions, and events with diplomats, authors, and foreign policy experts. We deliver international business and sustainability roundtable events for our corporate community members. We organize professional exchanges for delegations from around the world through the U.S. State Department. Last year, we hosted some nearly 300 international visitors here from over 100 different countries. Our K-12 classroom program brings international educators into the classroom to present on their home countries and we continue to offer programs especially for our international students just as we have for the past 70 years. On our website you can see a number of really terrific upcoming programs. On June 28th we're going to be partnering with the Women's Club of Minneapolis for a discussion on China and the US with Dr. Raymond Kuo from the Rand Corporation. On July 12th we'll be hosting a meeting uh, and a great hosting a meeting with this year's great cohort of Mandela Washington Fellows, 25 young leaders from 16 different countries across Africa. On July 19th, we'll be hosting a business networking event and program, Digital Innovations uh, and the Sustainability Goals at St. Paul's Metronome Tap Room. And I should say, maybe you're not aware of this, but we started a podcast this year at Global Minnesota. And the podcast, this this current podcast features our newest youth diplomacy program, a virtual exchange program between students at Edina High School and America House in Kyiv. If you're interested in becoming a Global Minnesota member, I should ask the question, I always ask this, raise your hand in the room if you're currently a Global Minnesota member. All right, so you guys, with your hands up, look around at the people that don't have their hands up. And so your job is to help us, you know, kind of bring these folks into the fold, if you wouldn't mind doing that. It's a great organization to be a member of, and we do have um, at the back of the room a table set up uh, after the program if you'd like to learn more about our organizations, our programs, our events, and becoming a member of Global Minnesota. We'd like to thank those who helped make tonight's program possible. I know the dean kind of walked through these folks a little bit, but it's worth worth, uh, repeating again because it takes a lot of great partners to put great programming together. We're so thankful to the Humphrey School, our program partner. And our promotional partners, the Ukraine American Community Center, uh, the Minnesota International NGO Network, the United Nations Association of Minnesota, the Committee on Foreign Relations Minnesota, and East West Connections. Uh, again, events like this size take a lot of great partners to make them possible. I'd like to begin the program by introducing and welcoming to the stage um, our moderator for the evening, Margot Squire. Margot Squire is a retired career diplomat with the USAID and the US Department of State, serving in Munich, Moscow, Melbourne, um, Baku, Ankara, and Washington, DC, among her many posts in her distinguished 30-year career. Most recently, she served as the cultural affairs specialist supporting 27 American cultural centers across Afghanistan from 2020 to 21. Please welcome Margot Squire. <clears throat> I'm now going to invite our distinguished guests to the stage, Ambassador Marie Masha Yovanovitch. Uh, please give a round of applause for Marie as she comes up. As a... As a Foreign Service Officer, Maria Ivanovich has served our country on many remarkable and challenging assignments, literally dodging bullets in Moscow, being caught in political crossfire in Ukraine, and being called to testify publicly before the United States Congress. A love of our country and a desire to serve led her to joining the Foreign Service where she led many senior leadership positions during her 33-year diplomatic career. Most notably, she was confirmed three times to serve as a US ambassador to Ukraine, Armenia, and Kyrgyzstan. And for people in foreign service to get selected and confirmed one time to be an ambassador is pretty amazing. Getting confirmed three times is, is astounding. So we're just so excited. She is a highly decorated foreign service officer and has received numerous awards, including the Presidential Distinguished Service Award, which she got twice, the Secretary's Diplomacy for Freedom Award, the Trainer Award for Excellence in the Conduct of Diplomacy. Currently, she is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a non-resident fellow at Georgetown University. If you've not had a chance yet to read her recent memoir, I highly recommend it, Lessons from the Edge. You will come away with a greater understanding of the important work of our diplomats around the world, and you'll be inspired by the ambassador's courage, her patriotism, and her diplomatic savvy. She truly represents the spirit of America and the best of what we stand for and continues to be a wonderful role model for other foreign service officers. So please, again, give, me a, give us a warm welcome for Ambassador, ambassador Yovanovitch.
2: Thank you, Phil. Um, Welcome everyone who's in the room and also um, watching virtually. Uh, It is a huge honor and a great pleasure to be able to be here to welcome Ambassador uh, Yovanovitch. Um, Ambassador, I've known you for 25 years. Do you mind if I call you Masha?
3: Of course not.
2: (laughs) Um, Otherwise, I can just say, hey, you. If you haven't had a chance to read the book, I really recommend and echo what Phil just said because it's an amazing book. And I felt like it was two books. Um, The first part about her background, the first two thirds about her background, um, her service, joining the Foreign Service, the country she served in, that was all very familiar and um, to those of us who are Foreign Service officers. And then the the following third, her return to Ukraine as ambassador and everything that happened there. And I have to say it was hard for me to read that, mm. knowing how much you had this need to serve your country, why you joined the Foreign Service. And I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. Um, where did that need come from? Yeah. And did the Foreign Service give you that yeah. give give you that sense of purpose? Yeah,
3: thank you for asking that question. So I, I wrote the book for many different reasons. Um, in part to just work through everything that had happened, uh, in part because I received <clears throat> letters um, from all over the United States um, thanking me for my service, telling me their, um, people telling me their own stories, and saying they didn't know that much about the State Department or the Foreign Service, and um, they wanted to hear more, and that I should write a book. And I had never thought that I was going to write a book, but as I could see my Foreign Service career coming to an end, Um, I thought, well, maybe I will write a book, because there's a lot I have to say. (laughs) And I, um, you know, as I was thinking about the book, I wanted to honor my parents. My parents came to this country with with me in tow. Um, They were uh, refugees. Um, They'd grown up uh, during World War II in authoritarian countries. They knew uh, what it was to live in a country where you couldn't say what you wanted to say. They knew what it was um, not to be able to worship as you wanted to. They knew what it was to be afraid. And they were just so grateful to come to the United States and to have the rights that all of us enjoy as citizens or as guests um, of uh, the United States of America. And they brought my brother up uh, and I to understand that we have rights in the United States and they are very precious. Um, but we also have responsibilities, and that all of us, each one of us, has responsibilities to ensure that those rights are are maintained, um, that our democracy is, um, you know, defended and sustained. And, you know, we could do that in any way we wanted to. My parents were both teachers um, and grew, uh, you know, kind of raised generations of students, both inside and outside of the classroom, including, actually, <laughs> yes, in the small world that we have here. Um, and, um, you know, and you know, those relationships actually continue to this day with my brother and, and, and me, which is so... Um, gratifying, you know, the difference they made in people's lives. And, you know, they basically told us, you know, you you, you can choose to serve your community, uh, your neighbors, your friends, the American people, in any way you want to, but make sure that you are living a life of consequence, make sure that you are giving back, because we are lucky uh, to have this opportunity. So, you know, that was always in the back of uh, my head. Um, I was fortunate to get almost a full scholarship at Princeton University, and the motto at the time at Princeton was Princeton in the nation's service. And that was, you know, from the first welcoming lecture to the final, you know, graduation, that was instilled in us all the way around, and so that was in my head. So, the first couple years after graduation, I experimented, I did all sorts of different things, I didn't quite know what I was doing. But you know, detours, um, I always tell people, are actually a good thing, because you learn what you don't like, um, but you also learn a lot of life skills along the way that you can apply later on. And I finally uh, came back to something that I had thought about in high school, which was the Foreign Service. Um, because I loved history, I loved policy, I loved foreign policy, I, liked, uh, I enjoyed politics. I loved travel and meeting people from different countries and eating the food and enjoying the culture. And this was um, a career that not only hit all those things, but it also hit you know, my need to give back to the American people. And it came with a paycheck. <laughs> so, you know, it was um, kind of, um, you know, obviously it's not all as simple as I'm saying now, um, but um, I thought, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to that. And so it's kind of complicated getting into the Foreign Service, but I jumped through all the hoops and uh, eventually did join the Foreign Service. And so was it a satisfying um, career? Yes, it was. I mean, it's not an easy career. It's not a career for everybody, although if you are a student or you you are here thinking about joining the Foreign Service, I say do it. Um, But, you know, go into it with your eyes wide open. And, um, you know, it is just so rewarding to work for the American people and to, you know, basically protect and defend our interests and our values. It is really a career of consequence.
2: And actually, you just answered my second question, which was (laughs) if you knew... You know, knowing what you know now, would you have would you go back and do it all over again? I mean, considering we're here in the Humphrey School of Public yeah. Public Policy, um, would you tell students to do this, go into public service, not necessarily the foreign service, but to follow your path? Would you do it again?
3: Yeah, um, I think I would because um, you know, I think any career has its um, low points. Um, mine certainly did. And every career has, um, you know, I mean, there are the super exciting, you know, pinch me moments, like I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this kind of work. Um, And then there are also the mind-numbingly boring, stupid parts of the job, which, you know, every job has, right? Um, But I think the Foreign Service has, has more of the... I can't believe I have the privilege to be in this room and contribute to this moment, um, than, than 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 many careers have. And I think, you know, what most of us uh, want, I think, is to be able to make a difference. You know, in our, you know, obviously to our families, but to the greater community as well. And I think that working in the State Department, you definitely make a difference, and in an important and in a positive way.
2: I'd like to switch now to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, you were there just recently. Yeah. Um, most of us have not been. What did you see and what did you come back? What, what, what feelings do you have and what did you feel from the Ukrainians that you met with?
3: Yeah, so I was there about three weeks ago for a security conference. And in addition, um, I and uh, the couple of people that I traveled with, we also had meetings with people in government, people in the previous government, people from civil society and, and, and others. And, um, you know, it was a little kind of an out-of-body experience, right, because um, we took, you know, getting there is, is difficult because, the, you know, you, you can't fly in. So uh, we, we took a train in, and it was a very, very, very long train ride in. Um, and you a- arrive in Kiev, which is one of the world's beautiful cities. It is a very green city. Um, they have uh, the lilac season. Lilac season was in full bloom, and so it was just gorgeous. And people appear to be walking around and, um, you know, doing their business as as normal in the center of the city where I was, which has not been a target for the most part of Russian attacks. Um, but but you know, <laughs> you know that there's a whole other world out there. And in the evenings, I mean, every night, I mean, the Ukrainians say it's very loud. Yeah, that means that there are rocket attacks every single night. And so, you know, I had never experienced something like that before. And I was lying in my hotel bed. You know, you, you hear the sirens. And I, I, of course, did what you're not supposed to do, which is I rushed to the window <laughs> to see what was happening. I mean, I'm laughing. It's a really stupid thing. Don't do what I did. <laughs> Um, but, um, you know, then I remembered, oh, yeah, I'm not supposed to do that. this. But what I saw was people running in the streets for cover. That was not reassuring. So then, um, you know, I, I sort of made a decision. It's, it, it, it seemed that the rockets were fairly far away and not headed toward Kiev. And so I made a decision to try to, um, you know, get some sleep. And I'm lying in my hotel bedroom, you know, just lying there waiting to go to sleep for two hours because, you know, it, it's just so terrifying uh, which is exactly what the Russians want um, and the Ukrainians have been you know whether it's in Kyiv whether it's Ode- in Odessa last night uh, whether it's in other other cities I mean Harkiv is under almost constant bombardment by the Russians um, this is what the Ukrainian people have been living with um, you know every single day since last February and um, you know when you ask the Ukrainian people how are you doing w- you know what's going on Um, they are still resolute. They are um, courageous, they are committed, they are confident they are going to win. And, you know, they'll say, I'm I'm, I'm really tired, um, but we are going to win, we have to win, because they know that if they stop fighting, um, the Russians are going to kill them. They're going to destroy their country, and they're going to kill them. And all you need to do is look at what the Russian military has done to date. All you need to do is listen to what Putin has been saying uh, about Ukraine and the Ukrainian people to know that that is the truth, and so they know they have no choice but to keep on fighting, and they are going to do that. And I have to say um, that that resilience is just so <laughs> inspiring; uh, it really is.
2: And and what I've heard you say also is um, that everyone is involved. Yeah, you know, from old people to young people, men, women, all of Ukrainian society is involved.
3: Yeah, it's 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 really something. I mean, this is a country that um, wasn't noted for its unity um, twenty years ago or thirty years ago, um, and uh, the country you know came together in 2014 when it was first um, attacked by Russia, and now it is really one uh, one united uh, front against the Russians. I mean, I I have used the 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 phrase that it's every man, woman, and child is mo- completely mobilized. And they're not mobilized because President Zelensky has said, you know, you have to do this, you have to think this way. They're not mobilized because the mayor is telling them to, to do a particular task. They're doing it because it's in their heart. They're doing it because they know that they need to fight for their families, for their, for their freedom, for their future. And, um, you know, p- different people do different things. Uh, you know, some people join the army, some people join the territorial defense forces, so that the, 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 the forces that are closer to home. Um, other people start um, driving ambulances, opening soup kitchens, whatever it might be. I was talking to uh, one of my former employees, um, a Ukrainian who is um, stationed in, um, in the south, and his unit had recently been attacked. And he said, um, you know, you wouldn't believe it, but um, this little boy came up to him afterwards and said, here, you can use this in the next, um, you know, in the next attack. And he gave him two spent bullet cartridges. Now, you can't use those again, of course. But, you know, he he was out there. He was collecting. He was trying to do whatever he could uh, to help the soldiers in, in that fight. I mean, it was really... You know, kind of a poignant moment. I have to say. So um, I, I I have to say that um, you know when you're in Ukraine, um, you you do believe, and I do believe that you, the Ukrainians will prevail. One of the um, one of the um, you know the the poet laureate uh, of Ukraine has this famous line, which is "Fight on, and you will prevail." He wrote that in the 1800s. Um, And he also, it was actually uh, 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 about the Russians invading the Caucasus. And, um, you know, that is a line that every school child learns, you know, even even before Russia's uh, war of terror. And uh, that is something I think that every Ukrainian continues to believe, and I certainly do as well.
2: I just wanted to repeat what you said. They're fighting for family, freedom, and future. So literally their survival
3: literally their survival, but also their values, Um, you know, so when I say their future, they want to, um, you know, that's also about their families, because, you know, who here doesn't want to create a world for your children where there is opportunity, where there is rule of law, and the Ukrainians, as as many uh, people here know, I mean, they've fought two revolutions, peaceful for the most part, um, trying to bring, um, to make their their leaders understand that they are a European country, that they want to live according to the rule of law, and by rule of law means that, you know, it's not a rule of man, it's not an arbitrary kind of a thing. Everybody is treated the same way, and leaders are held to account. And um, that's what they fought for, uh, you know, when they were demonstrating in 2014, and um, there was a real, you know, push towards reform, after that, they want a European future for their children, where their, their kids can get a normal education, can be treated with dignity um, normally, as, um, as uh, you know, whether it's the president's son or somebody else's son, and um, can have a, a reasonable future with the expectation of a good job. I mean, I think that's what we all want here. It's what people probably want in France, and I think it's certainly what people want in, in Ukraine. And so they are fighting for their values, and if you talk to um, to a Ukrainian, they will say that, you know, we are fighting for Europe. We are fighting for European values as well. And I think that is absolutely true. Actually, that leads to
2: the next question that I was I was thinking of, which is, what do you say to people who say, you know, we have so many problems in our own country. Why are we continuing to support and send all this money, all these resources to Ukraine? And how long can we continue doing this? Yeah. What yeah. do you say?
3: Well, I, I say two things. Um, and the first thing is um, they're absolutely right. We do have issues in our own country. We do have priorities in our own country and we need to be paying attention to them and we need to be investing um, in the solutions to um, the problems that we have in our own country. There's no question about that. But I also say that we need to be able to uh, to walk and chew gum at the same time. We, I mean, every country in the world, um, certainly the United States, needs to be able to have an effective domestic policy um, as well as an effective foreign policy. Because you know, you lose on one, you lose on the other, basically. So you have to do both. And um, I know that's sometimes counterintuitive. But um, you know, when I think about the US and other countries supporting um, supporting Ukraine I mean it's the right thing to do right where um, I mean Russia is uh, a bully of a country uh, that invaded for n- with for absolutely no reason invaded another country uh, simply because it wanted to expand its empire I mean that's not right that's not the kind of world we want to live in and so um, we um, we're, we're helping Ukraine because it's the right thing to do to help this democracy But the other reason we're helping Ukraine is because it's in our national security interests. If Ukraine is unable to stop Russia in Ukraine, Russia is going to keep on going. And how do we know this? We know this because we've seen what Putin has done over the last 20 years. He invaded Georgia in 2008 and basically suffered no consequences. There were no sanctions. Um, A new administration came in um, six months later and it was business as usual. Um, and so, you know, a dictator kind of learns from that, right? I can, I can invade another country, I can take two chunks of territory, and nothing bad happens except, you know, maybe there's some scolding. <clears throat> In 2014, um, Russia invaded Ukraine, took Crimea, um, and um, parts of the eastern part of the country, and that war continued for another eight years. And there were sanctions, Putin was kicked out of the G, uh, G8, making it the um, G7. And um, there, were other, there were other sanctions, um, and that was unpleasant. But Russia, they were not, um, in my opinion, strong enough, because Russia was able to withstand it. Russia was able to sanction-proof its economy to a certain extent. And um, clearly, Putin, when he was making his analysis of um, what was uh, going to happen, what would the consequences be if he invaded Ukraine again, he clearly felt that he would be able to withstand international, international sanctions and the reaction of, of, of the international community. I think he miscalculated there. Um, but um, I think that's what he learned with those first two tries, that, um, that uh, you know, we were not strong enough in our response, and um, so I think it's absolutely imperative. That this time, this third time, we be very clear and very strong, because perhaps counterintuitively, when the U.S. is, um, you know, a little uh, shaky and Margaret Thatcher's words, a little wobbly, um, it, it sends a confusing message to our adversaries. You know, do we mean it? Do we not mean it? What are we going to do uh, when we, you know, kind of wring our hands? and say we're worried about Putin's red lines, more worried about Putin's red lines than our own red lines that were agreed to back after World War II with the Soviet Union and many other countries that about the, um, you know, the principles that would govern international relations, uh, the inviolability of borders, um, you know, and uh, no use of force or the threat of force, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Putin crossed all of our red lines, and yet we often seem to be very worried about his. And I'm not saying that, um, I, I don't think it's really important that any administration, including this administration, think very carefully about what we do and how we support other countries, because the stakes are very high, especially when you're talking about Russia, you know, a country with nuclear weapons. But I'm also saying that we need to be clear that some things will not stand. Because Putin is a bully. He understands force. That's how he operates in the world, and he understands it if we are firm back with him. You know, he has said many things, you know, since the war started. That if, uh, you know, if Finland and um, Sweden uh, join NATO, that, you know, there will be uh, consequences. Yeah, crickets. Nothing has happened. He has threatened, you know, very um, uh, you know, irresponsibly in my view, he's threatened the use of tactical n- nuclear weapons. That is something that you know, runs a chill through you know, all of our spines every time we think about it, right? Um, and yet, um, I, think, I think it's an empty threat. And it's not just me. A lot of, um, I think most of um, our nuclear experts think this is an, an empty threat because what do you do for an encore? You know, once you have used nuclear weapons, um, th- there's no place else to go. And it doesn't actually change the facts on the ground to Russia's benefit. In fact, you could say it could complicate it greatly because, you know, are you really going to send your own forces through, uh, through that poisoned environment? Well, now maybe Putin would, um, but most countries would not. So I think, you know, I I think that on the one hand, uh, we need to be very careful when we make these decisions. Uh, On the other hand, we need to be very strong and unequivocal because I think that sends the message that Russia needs to hear. And it sends the message that other tyrants need to hear as well. Because everybody is watching what is happening in Ukraine and you know my own opinion i'm not a china expert but my own opinion is that uh, you know the road to um you know kind of solving the taiwan issue runs through ukraine if if ukraine is not successful i think there are going to be consequences not only in europe but further afield and so we need to be you know again resolute um this is in our national security interests Uh, and i think about you know what kind of a world would it be if Putin is successful in Ukraine, um, how would international relations be conducted? And it would be, you know, might make right makes right kind of a world. I don't think any of us wants to live in that world. We would be less secure. Uh, we would be less prosperous, and I think we would be less free.
2: Thank you. There are a lot of people who argue that we led Putin to to do this step. Um, you know, our actions, NATO enlargement. threatened Russia, um, and clearly you don't agree with that. So we'll we'll move on from there. Um, I'm glad to to hear that. Um, I wanted to ask you, before we open it up to questions from the floor, I wanted to ask a question that's near and dear to my heart, which has to do with citizen exchanges, the people-to-people exchanges, the soft diplomacy, um, public diplomacy that I worked in. Um, We spent this morning at uh, a high school uh, where these, when we heard from Phil, where American high school students and Ukrainians in Lviv and Kyiv um, were connected by, virtually. Um, and we heard from some of the, the Americans and Ukrainians who had been involved. And one young man said that this, an American said that this was probably the most inspirational thing that he's ever done. And that they learned. He learned. You know, they they thought initially. You know, these are people in a war zone. You know, their lives are so different from ours. But realized that no, there are more similarities when you get down and to talk to them. Mm-hmm. Um, just earlier this year, um, I was involved with an exchange that um, East West Connections, the Museum of Russian Art, McAllister College, and the embassy, our embassy in Moscow, was involved in bringing Russian musicians here. Um, exchanges continued through the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Um, and I wonder, I know you touch on this a little bit in your book, but do you see the possibility, the strength of, of these kinds of engagements and also you know, a future, and is it possible to keep doing these things with Russia that's at war with Ukraine? Yeah.
3: So I think that's a really important question. I am a big believer in, um, you know, people-to-people diplomacy in all of its many forms and, you know, I have to say, I, I, I love doing it. When, when I was in Kyrgyzstan, I mean, Kyrgyzstan is this teeny little country in, um, uh, in, um, in Central Asia. <laughs> Where was it? Uh, far, far away. <laughs> One of those countries it's on the edge. <laughs> yeah, it's sorry. <laughs> sorry. I hope there's nobody from Kyrgyzstan here. I loved your country. <laughs> but um, So, you know, and it was a nomadic society, you know, for many years until the Russians settled it in the 1800s, settled it as an annex, you know, defeated it and annexed it into the Russian Empire. And... Um, the Kyrgyz people are so sweet, and many uh, of the, uh, many uh, people outside of, of, of the capital city continue in their nomadic lifestyle, and so they're following the herds to the upper pastures in the summertime and then taking them down, and it was, you know, it was it was, it was, was just wonderful camping out, uh, you know, in the mountains and with the, the cowboys and everything else. So, you know, guess which other country has a cowboy culture? That would be the U.S. I mean, maybe not right here, maybe not in my home state of Connecticut, but in other parts of this country. Country. And so we brought American cowboys uh, to, uh, to Kyrgyzstan and um, they hooked up with Kyrgyz uh, cowboys and um, they did rodeos around the country. Um, so you know there was an American show, there was a Kyrgyz show, and then they, they did something together. It was amazing and it was um, you know just such a simple and effective and fun way of showing people you know what? What you just said, Margot. That yes, there are so many differences, but there are so many things that are similar in our cultures and in our values, and and you know what? What we love. And it was uh, it was just a great way to reach out to uh, people that are um, that are you know far from the United States and make those bonds, and make you know the harder things like when you get into policy issues where maybe they see things a different way or maybe they're being pressured by the Russians in ways that we don't necessarily quite understand or can't see. Um, But it makes people want to make that extra effort because, you know, we've taken time to share with them about our culture and build those connections. And they've seen that, and they've valued that, and, you know, they want to, you know, take that extra step on some of the things that really matter to us. Like when we wanted, like after 9-11, and we needed to have a base in Central Asia. And Kyrgyzstan was one of the countries we approached, and they agreed. I mean, if you had told, I think, anybody in this room, now, mind you, this is... 10 years after the, f- the break apart of the Soviet Union. If you had told anybody in 2001, if you told anybody in 1998, I- I'm sorry, not 2001, in um, 1991 when the Soviet Union fell apart, that 10 years later we would have two bases in Central Asia, they would ask you what you're smoking. I mean, nobody would have believed it. But I think because we had a presence, because we had embassies, because we took the time, um, our efforts our diplomatic efforts were successful in terms of getting a base that was actually that was absolutely essential to um, serve our national security interests in 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 Afghanistan and the region so I'm getting a little far afield but um, yeah I think that people to people diplomacy is is really important because you know when uh, a Russian or Ukrainian or a Kyrgyz person meets you um, and they have a good experience when they go back to their homes and there's different disinformation coming out of the Kremlin, you know, they might put it through that filter of, you know, I met this really interesting woman and she seemed pretty normal, and I don't think she's a fascist. <laughs> you know? um, and I think, you know, that, that kind of fingertip touch of a different culture is, is hugely important. So one of the things that I have never understood, I mean, I kind of understand it, but um, we, we don't value that, um, you know, as, as, as a total government. We don't value that um, those person-to-person exchanges, the, the money we put into um, having people study in the United States and being exposed to, you know, all of the wonderful things and some of the terrible things about the United States. doesn't mean that people are going to go back to their home countries and love everything about the U.S., but it does mean that they're going to understand us better. And that is really important in our complicated world. So, you know, the public affairs program, I don't even know how much it is, but it's millions of dollars. It is, It is. you know, when you think about, you know, Pentagon budget rounding errors, it doesn't even, <laughs> it, doesn't even it doesn't even, you know, uh, come close to that. Um, you know, we spend billions, hundreds of billions of dollars on the F-35, and all of, you know, the various mistakes that were made, and the changing of the specs, and on and on and on basically without Batten and I, Why can't we spend, you know, a hundred million on exchanges and so forth? It is money that is so well invested in our future. All right. <laughs> well, thank you. I see I'm preaching to the converted. <laughs> um, because, you know, again, I'm not saying we don't need a, a strong and robust, the best military in the world, we do. And we need F-35s, but we also need the other tools in our toolkit. Because at the end of the day, as you know, um, somebody uh, far more um, uh, somebody uh, else has said, um, if if the only um, you know if the only tool in your toolkit is the American military, that is the tool you're going to use. But if we have all these other tools at our disposal we can use the economic tool, we can use public outreach, we can use all sorts of other tools. Now one of the drawbacks, of course, is that uh, exchanges sometimes take years to really come to fruition. So you have um, a a high school exchange student that comes here to Minneapolis for a year and, you know, dang, it takes thirty years for that person to become president (laughs) of their country. (laughs) But, you know, is that a good investment or what? But we are on, um, you know, shorter timelines. the timeline of you know, two years or four years if you're talking about presidents, six years if you're talking about senators, they want immediate results. And I think that um, that's not possible with these kinds of programs, but I think arguably the results are as good as anything that, um, that we see in other areas.
2: Thank you for that. <laughs> um, I think it's time to get some questions from the audience. Okay. So um, we have a mic down here uh, as well as in the back. So if you have a question, I, I believe you're supposed to stand up and come down or hold up your hand if you're in the front. Yeah, um, Karen, who has a mic here, yeah, can. Um, you can
3: come, um, let's see, um, should maybe I identify? Or we can actually just line up um, if you
2: want to behind
0: me. Yeah, You can line up uh, back there and also up here along this row as well. And we, we have a question here already, so.
2: Oh, and there are questions. Questions online also.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, I have a few of those. I'll read them off as well. So you talked about the signal that our response to the Ukraine war uh, gives to leaders in the post-Soviet sphere. I was wondering, with what your experience in being an ambassador in Armenia and Kyrgyzstan sort of tells you about the mindset that might have shifted with the start of the active conflict in the war in Ukraine.
3: Yeah, that is such an interesting question. So I think that, um, you know, in, in the region, everything is shifting because, uh, you know, I think Putin thought it would be a fast, a fast, quick war and, you know, he'd be leading a victory parade within a week and um, that obviously did not happen. And so all of, uh, all of the countries in the region are watching what's happening with Moscow. Uh, they need to preserve those relationships, at least for now, but they're also looking around to see what else is out there, who else is out there, and who their allies and friends might be. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's frankly an opportunity for the United States. And, um, you know, when I think about, you mentioned Armenia, um, we are uh, fairly active in trying to help uh, the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis uh, finally, settle uh, their uh, their uh, dispute over Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, we'll see, uh, you know, what happens with that. Um, I think that it's important for us to be present in all of these countries, and to um, you know to continue to have strong relationships with all of them. Because just as with Kyrgyzstan in 2001, we didn't know on September 10th that we would desperately need them to have a base. Um, so that we could um, we could prosecute the war in, in Afghanistan. But on September 11th, that became very clear. And we don't know what the future is going to hold, but what we need to do is what George Shultz, um, uh, former sec- um, President uh, Reagan's Secretary of State, said, we need to be tending the garden and maintaining those relationships everywhere in the world, because you never know where the front line is going to be. Um, You never know what we may need Uh, and it may not be, you know, even a security need or a a war need. There may be some, you know, special mineral that is only, you know, found, uh, you know, for your iPhone in a particular country of the world. We want to ensure that market is open for American business, right? And so um, I think you know, tending the garden, as George Schultz said, is uh, as those of you who are, are gardeners or who have, you know watched anybody garden, it's you know it's kind of a slog. It's kind of boring. Every day you're in the garden, you're pulling the weeds, you're fertilizing the roses, you are tending that garden and making sure that everything is in proper order for that moment when you know the garden show comes, or you know, in diplomatic parlance, when you you know reach out to a country and ask them for something really important. You want that country to be ready to say yes. So my question would be, um, our country is
2: dealing with disinformation, I would say, and our new way of communicating socially. I'm a bit older, so I'm not quite so into I'm it. But anyway,
3: so do you have any
2: feel um, for what the Russian people are trying to deal with when they look at what the conflict, if they know of the conflict in Ukraine? And will it have any way of helping stop the war like from inside Russia?
3: Yeah, I, I you know, I wish I could say, um, I have a, a better and more positive answer for you, but I think uh, Vladimir Putin has um, a, a lock on communications in Russia. And I think many people um, uh, who support him—I mean—are are getting the official communications, and um, I think for the most part they believe it. There was a public opinion poll taken uh, about a month ago, and he is still at 82% popularity. Um, so uh, again, you know, I mean, you could make the argument that maybe that's not true—that people are really uh, are afraid to say that they don't support Putin. I mean, I, I, I get all that, but he he he's still quite popular, and I think the message of um, making you know Russia great again, um, you know, re re rebuilding the empire, is um, you know, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's a message that resonates in many countries, um, and it, <laughs> It resonates here uh, in Russia as well and so between those things and the fact that they're not hearing about atrocities against uh, un- unless there's some made-up uh, atrocity against a Russian soldier they're not hearing all the things that we know and that the Ukrainian people know um, they're being told that Ukraine is a fascist state or that NATO and the U.S. are actually fighting this war and Ukraine is just a proxy state. I mean, they're being told different lies, different times. And that's the thing about, um, about disinformation. You don't, um, you know, the people who are perpetrating it don't necessarily need you to believe their truth. They just need you to believe to disbelieve the truth. And so they will put out you know, all these lies and more lies until all of us are so confused and we just throw up our hands and say whatever. You'll recall that in July of 2014, the Russians brought down um, a, a, a civilian airliner. And pretty clear that it was the Russians. Um, there's lots of facts out, out there in a court case that, that corroborate all that. And the Russians have put out something like 22 different explanations for what happened. The Americans did it. The Ukrainians did it. Yeah, I, I don't know, the gremlins did it. Um, and it, 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 it isn't important that people know what the truth is. What's important is that they don't believe, um, you know, well, what's important is that they don't believe the truth. They don't have to believe any one of the 22 lies, they just need to give up. And so it's very, very hard to combat. Um, many Russians do have, I, I don't wanna say many, um, but a significant um, percentage of the population do have VPN. And so they can get information if they need it, but it's not being you know, the truth of, of, of what is going on in, in Ukraine. Um, but I, I think most people don't avail themselves of that. They don't really wanna know, they wanna live their lives. And, um, you know, it's just complicated and, frankly, dangerous to know. Yeah, so. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hello. Russians are an ethnic minority in Ukraine. How has the war changed Ukraine's view of other minority groups within Ukraine? Um, I actually, what I observed after 2014 uh, was that... um, you know, um, minorities in Ukraine went to the defense of Ukraine. Um, And so there was less prejudice against other groups, you know, the other, whatever they might be, unless um, uh, they were treated better, because um, Ukrainians could see that Ukraine is a multi-ethnic country and um, that uh, people who are not Ukrainian Uh, ethnically see themselves as Ukrainian from a citizenship point of view and there's there's obviously a difference there Um, and um, and they respected that and they respected um, you know the sacrifices that um, minorities made now is there uh, is there uh, you know prejudice and discrimination etc etc in Ukraine yes there is just like there is in every other country in the world including our own um, but I actually think the Ukrainians have a pretty good story to tell on that front, including with the Russian minority population. I mean, Russians can study in their own school, the schools. Um, I, I, I shouldn't say right now, because I'm, I'm not sure exactly right now. But certainly when I was there, I left in 2019, Russians could um, send their kids to Russian language schools. They could speak Russian. They're, they're, I mean, Odessa. Um, you know, certain cities in Ukraine were Russian-speaking cities, big cities like Kharkiv and Odessa. Um, and so when, um, when Putin talks about how there was discrimination against uh, Russian language speakers, I think he probably meant in Russia, <laughs> not in Ukraine. Um, so, um, so thank you for the question. I, I think like all countries, Ukraine probably has work to do. But um, overall, they do a pretty good job, especially considering the challenges there.
1: Okay, um, so I, I understand that, that, that you want uh, younger folks to at least consider uh, careers in the foreign service. Uh, well, so or,
3: or any service, you know, working for the US government.
1: Okay, well, anyway, uh, I know that, that there are movie and TV portrayals of, uh, of diplomats and such. I wonder though, w- what is the, the least uh, appreciated or understood facet of the glamour of being an ambassador? <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's uh, hard for the two of us to know what you're talking about, actually. Because, um, yeah, I mean, there is, um, like I said before, there are some pinch-me moments where George Clooney is in the room. Oh, my God. <laughs> I actually get to meet him. Um, but usually it's not like that. I mean, <laughs> usually, um, you know, it's just a slog. It's tending the garden. And... Um, and you're not doing it in a ball gown. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you have a better answer for this question. It's basically not a glamorous life. I mean,
2: in general, people look at the foreign service and they think, oh, they're giving parties, they're going to cocktail parties, there are gala events, and they're all work. I mean, that's how you make relationships is you know over a meal or at a reception, um, talking to people and out there so that as, as Masha said, when you need their help, they know who you are and they trust you. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of unglamour. I mean, you know, early in your career, you literally were fired on in Moscow. I and mean, there's a yeah. story in your book where she, you know, there, there are three of them going from the embassy and there's only two helmets and two uh, Kevlar, bo- vests. Ke- Kevlar vests. And guess who did not get either of those? <laughs> Yeah. So um, and you know dodging literally dodging bullets as Phil said, so yeah. and then it's really fun to be able to talk to The president of a country. I'm thinking Kyrgyzstan and Bakir yeah. Kiev who's trying to extort you for more money for the base yeah. Yeah. You know? Thank it's, you madam ambassador
3: <laughs> yeah. it's um so just to add to that, and thank you for uh, <laughs> you know answering the question in a better way than I did. Just to add to that, you know the gala events, um, you know again, especially in the beginning, it's with people you don't know. So it's le- not like all of your best friends are at the table with you, and you're dancing and having a great time and whooping it up and drinking as much as you want, and you know having the extra portion of, of chocolate cake. No, it's it's a work event with strangers. Um, and the other thing uh, that we would often do, and I'm sure uh, you did as well, was, um, you know, at any given moment, uh, we have issues that we're working at the U.S. Embassy. Um, It it might be a trade issue, it might be um, an IPR issue, it might be um, a security issue. And so, you know, we would think about this in advance. You know, there was gonna be a reception, Uh, We knew who the guests were that we had invited. Of course, we were hoping they are all going to show up, right? And um, we would um, assign questions, you know, for... um, Uh, you know, individual people from the embassy to ask um, individuals who are coming, so, you know, where is the Ukrainian uh, uh, government at this point in its deliberations on this particular trade issue? Oh, really? Well, can I come in tomorrow and discuss this further, Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, people had homework assignments, (laughs) um, you know, at this, you know, glamorous event. (laughs) I don't know if you want to add more. Yeah, just, just hold that thought. <laughs>
0: and we have a question from our Zoom audience. Uh, what are the implications, what would be the implications of NATO membership for Ukraine? And do you believe that uh, membership for Ukraine and NATO could be possible someday?
3: I think someday. Um, there's a NATO summit coming up in July, as um, probably most of you know, and I don't think it's going to happen in July. And... Um, You know, what I'm hoping is that a pathway to membership is made more clear for Ukraine. I think that would be tremendously um, important. Uh, Failing that, I hope that there is, you know, some, um, not only discussion, but some offer of security guarantees for Ukraine. Because I think the only way we get to peace and peace negotiations, which is what, you know, all of us desperately want, right? Um, that are actually meaningful and will provide a, a just and lasting peace for Ukraine is if Ukraine has security guarantees of some sort. You know, and so that would, uh, you know, I don't know what that looks like. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, um, there's all sorts of theories about what, what, what it might entail. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the thoughts is that uh, Ukraine should have a porcupine defense, kind of like Israel. Um, and that there should be an agreement, kind of like the one we have with Israel, which is not a NATO um, uh, guarantee, but it's it's pretty pretty close. And Israel is so fortified and so strong that you know other countries think long and hard about whether they want to attack Israel. Maybe that's the solution for Ukraine. So that we you know we help equip them, we help train them, we ensure that um, there are. Uh, there is a steady supply of um, security items coming from the U.S. and the West. We ensure that they are able to um, to manufacture their own weapon systems. Um, you know, over the last um, 20, 20 years, thirty years, we've we've let our supply chains and our production lines go fallow, right? And that's why we're struggling now to help uh, supply Ukraine, and um, you know we need. We need to reverse that and figure figure out a way to provide those guarantees to Ukraine so that Ukraine feels secure enough, um, you know, once it's achieved its military objectives, to start a diplomatic process, and one uh, and security guarantees that are strong enough that deter Russia from ever trying this again. So I think there's a lot on the table right now. It's not you know it's not yet time. This is still the fighting season. Um, because neither both countries want to uh, improve their situation on the ground so they are stronger at the negotiating table. But one day, hopefully, uh, there will be a time for peace, and hopefully uh, all of us um, in Ukraine and in the n- international community will be ready with a comprehensive um, kind of solution, which would include security guarantees of some sort.
0: And we can take uh, two more questions.
3: Um. So in Ukraine, we saw like the Orange Revolution, which was like, we saw a lot of Westernization of government and politics. Um, Do you think a similar revolution is possible in other ex-Soviet countries like Belarus or Kazakhstan? And if so, how involved would the US be in that? I mean, I, the premise of the question seems to be that we were somehow involved in the Orange Revolution, and we weren't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it was Ukrainians who were. Um, th- th- just to remind everybody in the audience, there, there, there were presidential elections um, where uh, the candidate of power and the Russian candidate basically fiddled the elections, and the people stood up and said no, you know. And so I think that was very much, uh, you know, from the street, from Ukrainians. Um, I, you know I think the the difficult thing about um, revolutions and transitions and so forth is that uh, we we don't really know when 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 change is going to come. We may have indicators and so forth, but we don't really know, and in part that's because the countries and the protagonists in in those countries themselves don't necessarily know. I mean, if you talk to people in Kyrgyzstan after, after their revolution, in Georgia after theirs, certainly in Ukraine, they had no idea that when they started, you know, a street demonstration with a couple hundred people, that over months it would mushroom into a change of government. They had no idea. So it's kind of hard for us to predict that, right? Um, I think, you know, political scientists have this saying that um, a, a revolution looks um, impossible when you're looking forward, but when you're looking back at the event, it looks inevitable, and so you know that's probably not a very satisfying answer for you. <laughs> um, but uh, that's kind of um, you know I I think what we don't know about Kazakhstan is probably a lot, uh, and um, you know we've seen a lot of developments there over the last uh, year and a half, uh, so I wouldn't rule it out. But you know I'm also not predicting it. No predictions. <laughs>
2: I'd first like to just say thank you, and um, yes. you know, I've I've heard a lot of U.S. officials and you yourself tonight say that we we want victory for Ukraine, mm-hmm. and um, I'm just wondering if you can tell us more about what that looks like specifically. Does it does it look like 1991 borders, 2014 borders, 2022 borders, something different? What specific things does victory for Ukraine look like?
3: Well, you know, if you were to ask me, Mas Ivanovich, which I guess you are. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you what I think victory should look like, um, but you know, the first thing I would say is that it's really up to the Ukrainians. They are the ones who are doing the fighting, um, both for their own country as well as for Europe and the United States. And so they really, um, I think, are the ones who are going to have to decide in the end what victory looks like to them. And Uh, Right now, I think all Ukrainians are pretty clear that they want 1991 international borders. They want all of their land back because that is their right and their due. Now, does that mean a year from now that's where all Ukrainians are going to be? I'm not sure. But uh, I would say that right now victory looks like 1991 borders um, because why should Russia get to keep, as a result of an illegal and brutal invasion, why should they get to keep Ukrainian lands? Um, and portray that as a victory to their people. That doesn't seem right to me I think it's important that Ukrainian people get some form of reparation from from Russia We have 300 billion dollars of frozen Russian assets. How can we turn that into something that will help rebuild Ukraine? Um, I think there needs to be justice for Ukraine and the Ukrainian people The people who have been murdered the civilians who have been murdered tortured raped the children who have been taken to Russia um, who don't you know some of them are are very very small they're never gonna know that they have families who love them in ukraine they're gonna forget their language and their culture i mean surely we need justice for those families and for those children um, and so we need that for ukrainians but we also need it more broadly for russians russians need to understand what is being done in their name and that it can never happen again and the only way to to ensure that is to have some sort of process. I don't know what that looks like, but some sort of judicial process that would bring justice to Ukraine and hold Russians accountable for what they have done. And I think that's also important for future possible events like this, because if 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 um, if leaders understand that they will be held accountable. And if their cronies around them understand that they will be held accountable if they do to another country what Russians are doing to Ukraine, maybe they'll think twice. But if the Russians get off scot-free, you know, I I mean, I think it's more likely that never again means, yeah, maybe soon, or something like that. And I don't think that's, that's, that's what we want. So I think there are a number of different elements. Oh, and the other one of course is security guarantees, which we've already discussed. So I think there are a number of different elements that would um, have to be part of um, you know, a, a victory for, uh, for Ukraine. And um, I think there's a lot of work ahead.
2: Thank you very much, Masha. And thank you all for coming today and for listening in. And uh, thank you for coming to Minnesota. And (laughs) spending...
1: And as I share a few closing comments, I'm giving the two of you cover to move up the stairs and get to the book signing table. (laughs) Otherwise, you probably won't be able to move through to do that, if that's okay with the two of you. But can we give both um, um, Margo and Masha another round of applause? uh, Thank you very much. Just a couple of final comments on our way out again to say, a huge thanks to all of you for participating and being a part of our program this evening, for asking just tremendous questions. It was a great a great discussion, and we're so thankful. As we mentioned, uh, Magers and Quinn are here. They're selling books in the back that uh, the ambassador will be signing if you'd like to come back and get a book. Um, it's totally worth it. It was an amazing read. Uh, I really enjoyed it so much. Um, And if you felt moved tonight as you're listening to the stories about what's happening in Ukraine, um, this afternoon one of our stops, we had several stops today for the Ambassador, um, one of them was at the Ukrainian American Community Center. And it was a very moving program, and we were so proud of the tremendous work the Ukrainian community here is doing on behalf of Ukrainians uh, back in their home country. And we heard from a lot of folks that are also involved in refugee resettlement and the work that they're doing, and so supporting them. One of the greatest things I heard today was just how far ahead Minnesota is in helping to support resettlement and taking care of people that are coming here from across the world, particularly from Ukraine. So it was tremendous to hear that, but they're doing some great work, and if you're looking for something to support, as the ambassador said, um, there's some great work going on here that we can make a difference uh, in this terrible situation that we're all faced with uh, in Ukraine. Again, from Global Minnesota's point of view, thank you for participating. Thank you for your membership. Thank you for engaging with us. We have a lot of terrific programming coming up and some really cool things in the works f- for this fall. So, And that's a teaser. So we're hoping that you'll come and participate and join with us. Again, thanks to everybody for your, for your help and your support and for making it possible for us to bring, really, the world to Minnesota and share, the, and share Minnesota with the world. Thank you, everyone.